The final book that we will look at in this course is the book of Esther. And uh, the book of Esther covers the period of time that's really uh, between, say, the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. So the temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C., and then the wall was rebuilt under Nehemiah in 445 B.C. And the book of Esther takes place uh, after many Jews have returned to the land of Israel, and, and it's set in the days, Esther 1.1, of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And then, and then verse 3 tells us in the third year of his reign, which is, is approximately 483 B.C. So this is when the book of Esther opens in the third year of Ahasuerus, 483 B.C. And, and this Ahasuerus reigns, think about this, from India to Ethiopia. So he reigns over all the, the land between what we know today as India all the way over to Ethiopia in Africa. So this is a, a massive uh, uh, empire over which Ahasuerus reigns, and, and he is a despot. He is a brutal tyrant, and we, we'll see that as, as, the, as the text unfolds for us. He's not someone who is um, uh, regulated by the law of God. He's, he's regulated by his own desires. And, and his society is not a society that has had the benefit of, of the uh, sanctifying influences of the Word of God. So this man does what he wants. And he, and he does what he wants according to his own appetites and according to his own discretion. And, and it's a brutal place to live, uh, the, this man's empire. And so um, as the text opens, he's giving this feast, and um, he, he has in verse 3 all his officials and servants, and we're also told that the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. The, it may be that the army is gathered because, uh, it, because they are preparing for a massive campaign against Greece, which is actually what was happening in, in, the, in the empire of Persia, Medo-Persian empire at this time. And so perhaps they're preparing for this, this huge campaign against Greece. We don't know. Maybe, maybe the, the armies are just gathered uh, in, in the capital for another reason. And, and what's going on in verse 4 is he's showing them the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's six months. Six times three is 18. Six times 30 is 180. So for six months, they're having this massive celebration. This is not, this is not one ongoing party. There are probably various uh, parades and, and um, displays of grandeur and, and uh, pomp and circumstance being uh, uh, demonstrated. And, and, and so... The, everyone is gathered there in the capital, and for the six-month period of time, there are these celebrations and these feasts. And in the midst of this, when the days were completed, in verse 5, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the capital, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, and, and what's described here in verse 6 is just the lavish adornment of the extravagant display of wealth that, that, is, that is made at this feast. So 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. So there's just this fabulous display of wealth. And this is, this is, uh, this is telling us that the man we're dealing with here, this Ahasuerus, he's, he's incredibly wealthy. He is... He is uh, the most powerful man in the known world at the time. He is the emperor. He is the king. And he can't overcome the curses of God. So we, we see here that, that while they're drinking, uh, the queen is also giving a feast. And then on the seventh day in verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these, these seven eunuchs. Now let's think about this for a moment. This guy has around him these seven counselors who are eunuchs. These guys don't make themselves eunuchs uh, voluntarily. These guys have been made eunuchs. And, and the reason they've been made eunuchs is because the king has a harem. He has a bunch of women running around the palace. And they're his women. And he doesn't want anybody fooling with his women. And so he makes sure that even if they wanted to, the men who surround him and maybe who have authority to, to accomplish certain things, they're not going to be able to fool with his women. And so he, he makes them eunuchs. So this guy's brutal. He's a brutal dictator who, who is operating according to his own appetites, and then he's enforcing his will and his desire on other people without respect to what's good for them or to what they want or, or what they desire. It's, it's the king's will that is law. And he gives this order for Queen Vashti to come and uh, to show to the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, before we read the next verse, um, let me just remind you what Genesis 3.16 says. As the Lord, having cursed the serpent, when he addresses the woman, he says, I will put, uh, he, he says, uh, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, and I would submit to you that that statement in Genesis 3.16, this is not your desire will be for your husband in that you'll desire him sexually. This is your desire will be for your husband in that you will want to rule him like sin is going to want to rule Cain. Same language used. And uh, he will rule over you. Uh, Cain must master sin. That is, he must put it down, take no prisoners, control it. And we see those kinds of relations happening right here. And, and I would submit that that curse, Genesis 3.16, is the origin of all marital difficulty. And, and that's what we see here. The reason, the reason that, that Vashti doesn't want to do what the king wants her to do, and the reason that the king doesn't know how to relate to his wife in such a way that she wants to do what he wants her to do, is because of this curse. It's because of the curse of sin. And he can't escape that curse for all his wealth, for all his power, for all his abilities, he cannot overcome God's curse. So Esther chapter 1 verse 12 tells us, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And so the way they're going to deal with this 
is they're just going to banish Vashti because you don't want word to get out that the queen has refused the king and, and disregarded him. If that gets out, that's going to result in the wives across the realm disregarding the commands and the authority of their husbands. And so to keep this from setting a bad precedent for all marriages else everywhere, uh, they, they banish Queen Vashti and um, he, she will never again uh, come before King Ahasuerus in verse 19. And, and they're going to give her royal position, position to another who is better than her. And, and the way that they're going to accomplish this, is they get this bright idea, which this is, this is just symptomatic of the brutality and the viciousness and the selfishness of this king and his realm. And so when they go to pick another another queen, look at what they do down in uh, Esther chapter 2. They say in, in verse 2, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of, this, of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch. And let their cosmetics be given to the women and let the young, women, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So look what's going to happen. The daughters of the kingdom are going to be brought together. They don't get a choice in this. If they don't, if they don't want this, if they want to marry somebody else, that doesn't matter. If you're a father in this kingdom and you don't want your daughter made into a concubine of the king, if she doesn't please him and become the queen, it doesn't matter. Your, your desires for your daughter, or if you're a young woman in this realm, your desires for the rest of your life, they are irrelevant. The king has devised this plan. That's the way it's going to go. And so by force, the virgins of the realm are gathered to the capital, and night by night, a woman goes into the, queen, uh, into the king. If she pleases the king, maybe he'll call for her. If not, she just goes to a different part of the harem, and, and that's her life now. She's a concubine. She, she belongs to the king, and what kind of life can she expect? Well, whatever the king wants to give her. So if the king wants to give her away as a favor, that's her life. If the king wants to make a deal with somebody and throw in one of these women, that's her life. She's got no say. This is a terrible place to live, this, this kingdom of Ahasuerus. Horrible situation. We read in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. This is very interesting because you remember who Kish was in the Old Testament. Kish is Saul's father. So this is one of, this is somebody from the house and, and, and uh, tribe of Saul. He's a Benjaminite and he's the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. So Shimei apparently was one of Saul's brothers. And, and so um, he, this guy Mordecai is the, is the uh, looks like the grandson of one of Saul's brothers, and his great grandfather is Kish, Saul's father, and um, and that's going to become significant as we consider con continue through this book. Verse six, he had been carried away captive, uh, carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. Now probably there were more than just the few generations that are named here between Mordecai and Kish. Um, either that or this is another Kish who's not Saul's father uh, because there's a lot more generations between 1000 B.C. when Saul reigns and 
483 B.C. when Mordecai is on the scene. And at any rate, he's, he's a Benjaminite, and he, and, he, and he looks to be from the house of Saul. And he's carried away captive. And verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now we should be very clear here that Esther has no choice in this matter. And, and in, in this kind of situation, um, you, you don't, you don't if, if you resist, if you resist probably what's going to happen to you, let's say you're a lovely young woman with a beautiful form and figure, lovely to look at, and, and the soldiers come to, to take you into the king's palace. If you resist, you're probably going to be abused by those soldiers and, and so um, it's probably going to be worse than merely them killing you. They're, 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 you. You don't have an option to resist. If they take you, they take you. That settles it. And, and resistance only leads to further abuse. So, so Esther, sometimes people, people uh, speak of this narrative as though Esther has maybe done something questionable, as though she, she has been uh, less than upright. I think she doesn't have a choice. The, she has a choice between bad and worse. Bad being, um, I can go along and make, make the best of this situation and try not to get myself killed or raped or worse, tortured and abused, uh, or, or I can uh, resist and, and probably be treated uh, very badly. Uh, not, not, probably not killed immediately. Probably uh, she's going to become the sport of the soldier. So, so I don't think we should, we should look at Esther and say, well, this is questionable morality, or maybe she shouldn't have done this. That's, that's, she doesn't have a choice in this matter. She was, she was uh, scooped up and taken into the custody of the king. And then when she gets there, um, what she does, it, it looks like she conducts herself in a way that is um, obedient and submissive and upright. That, that seems to be what results in what we read in verse 9 of Esther 2. The young woman pleased Haggai, this, this guy who has charge of the women. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. And um, Mordecai is advising her not to let it be known that she's a Jew. And evidently she has contact with Mordecai and, and probably Mordecai is telling her, Esther, you need to conduct yourself in a way that, that you're pleasing to the people around you because Mordecai evidently works in the palace and he knows the way that things go. And so um, he's giving her advice and she's taking it, she's obedient and she's pleasing everyone around her and, and prospering. And then lo and behold, um, she goes to the king and... Um, she takes only what she's advised to take. And verse 17 of Esther 2, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, I think here what we have is a situation where this, this seed of the woman, this young woman Esther, is overcoming the curse by 
that, that curse on gender relations, uh, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. She's overcoming that curse by being obedient and submissive and, and doing what she's told to do and, and probably conducting herself with godliness and uprightness and, and purity and holiness. And, and it wins the favor of the king. He likes her. He makes her the queen. And, um, um, and, and Mordecai still doesn't make known. Mordecai, Mordecai still advises her not to make known her people. And she, she continues to obey him. And then um, Mordecai... Uh, discovers a plot on the king's life, makes it known, delivers the king, and, and this sets the scene. So you have two Jews, highly placed, well-placed. They're related to each other. Uh, it's not necessarily known that they're Jews at this point. Mordecai, maybe it is. But Esther, uh, it's not known that she's a Jew. She's the queen, though. Uh, but she's a queen in a, in a situation where the queen doesn't necessarily have a lot of power, as we've seen. And, um, and Mordecai has saved the king's life. Then look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, do you remember who Agag was? Agag was that fellow that Saul was commanded by Samuel to go and put under the ban. Saul was to go to the, the Agagites and destroy them all. And you remember that Saul didn't obey. He didn't put the Agagites under the ban. And now it's as though, as a result of... Saul's failure to obey, you have this descendant of those whom he was supposed to put under the ban who's going to rise up as the seed of the serpent and oppose the descendants of Saul who are the seed of the woman. So Mordecai and Esther are going to be threatened by Haman the Agagite. And he is infuriated that Mordecai won't bow to him, and he hates him because he's a Jew, and, um, and so he devises this plan. Now look, look how, uh, how little regard the king has for the lives of his subjects. Look at what Haman says to King Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 3, verse 8. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also do to them as it seems good to you. So there's this, he's got this one advisor, Haman, who comes and says, we need to exterminate these people. And the king says, okay, go forward with the genocide. This is atrocious. This is a, this is a wretch of a man, a man who has no moral compass whatsoever. This is a man who you convince him that something's going to be good for him or pleasing to him, and he does it without regard of for how many people are going to die or how many people are going to be affected or what this is going to mean for others. This guy is just totally selfish and, and self-absorbed. And Haman wickedly wants to stamp out the whole Jewish race. And so they authorize it and the word goes out that this is going to happen. And at the end of the verse, end of, end of the chapter in Esther 3.15, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Mordecai learns what uh, is going on, and he, 
and he goes and appeals for help to Esther. And he basically sa he says to her in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, if you keep silent at, at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What he's basically telling her is, look, God is going to deliver his people. You can either be a part of that deliverance, you can either be instrumental in that deliverance, or you can miss your chance to be a Jewish national hero, hero. but God is going to deliver His people. And, and probably you are where you are at this time in history so that you can be used of God to deliver His people. And so she, she makes this, this bold and courageous statement where she says, if I perish, I perish, and she'll go to the king. Excuse me. So she goes into the king, and the king holds out the golden scepter, and, uh, and Esther doesn't make her request immediately for her life. She, she plans a banquet. And then, meanwhile, um, the, the king uh, um, is reminded of what Mordecai did for him. And, 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 and while the king is reminded of what Mordecai had done for him, Haman is building these gallows. And then, and then ha the king wants to reward Mordecai. Haman comes in and, uh, and, and, and asks what should be done for the one that the king wants to honor. And Haman says, who would he want to honor but me? And then he lays out this, this glorious list of things to be done for the one that, that the king wants to honor. And the king says, great, go do that for Mordecai because he saved my life. Haman is furious, and then, and, then, and then the next thing you know, they, they, they come to the banquet, and, and Esther won't make the request, and so they come to the banquet the next day, and then at the banquet the next day, with Haman and the king there, uh, Queen Esther, in, in Esther chapter 7, verse 3, she says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. And, and so the plot is divulged, Haman's attempt to stamp out the Jews, and uh, the king, uh, he wants to know who, who has done this, and he's, he's infuriated. He gets up and he storms out. Meanwhile, Haman comes over and throws himself at, at, uh, at uh, Esther's feet to beg for mercy. The king comes back in. He sees Haman throw himself down. He thinks that, that, that Haman is attacking Esther, and it says that they covered his face and took him out, meaning his life is over. And then they wind up hanging Haman on the very gallows that he had had built for Mordecai. And so uh, the, the, the day that's appointed for the Jews actually to defend themselves is, uh, is, is this, is they cast lots for this day, and, and the name of the lot, lot is uh, the poor. And so they've cast lots, and, and the plural of poor are, is purim. And so um, the way that they determined the day on which the Jews were to be slaughtered, but which turns out to be the day on which the Jews defend themselves. It's referred to as Purim, and they celebrate this as a feast. A new feast is inaugurated, and the Jews destroy their enemies. Sometimes people look at this, and they think that the Jews have been excessively vengeful, or that maybe Haman and Mordecai, uh, I'm sorry, Mordecai and Esther have been excessively harsh. I don't think that's the way we should read the narrative. I think we should read the narrative as an instance 
of the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed and between you and the woman, and he shall crush your head. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, of the serpent and of his seed. And in Esther, the seed of the woman, this unexpected girl, rises up and she, and she, she so works that what we read in uh, Esther 9.24 at the end of the verse they, 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 um, they plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But their evil, in verse 25, is returned on their own heads. And so it's as though the seed of the serpent want to crush and destroy the Jews, and instead their evil is returned on their own heads, and they wind up getting their heads crushed. And... Uh, this is a, I think this is a wonderful story of the Lord delivering His people in unexpected ways and, and to, the, to the glory of His name. And um, I would urge you to give yourself to the study of the book of Esther because, because stories like this show us that, that regardless of the odds and, and no matter how bad it may look, even, even if it looks like the enemy has all the power, God is able to work so that the enemy's own tools and designs are used against him. And God delivers his people and, and raises them up and, and uh, saves them. And through the judgment of their enemies, God's people are saved. And God's glory is demonstrated in his displays of justice and in his displays of mercy. And that is pretty much the story of the book of Esther. Um, I think that, uh, that uh, you, you, you will not regret any amount of time that you spend studying the book of Esther or, or any of the other books that we've studied in, in this class. And I would say that, uh, that uh, the books that we have covered in this class, uh, along with the rest of the Old Testament, are the books that Paul had in mind when he said, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I think that uh, the way that we know whether or not we believe with Paul that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable is do we choose to preach and teach these books? So, so would you preach and teach Ezra or Esther? Uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, you, it's profitable. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so um, let, me, let me urge you to be a student of the Scriptures. Uh, when we come to the end of our days, we will not regret time that we spent studying the Scriptures. We don't want to come to the end of our days and realize that we spent more time reading blogs than we spent reading the Bible. We don't want to come to the end of our days and realize that we spent more time reading about the Bible than we spent reading the Bible. And so what we want to, what we want to do is we want to make this book our own. And, and the way that we do that is we, we obey Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1 and, and other passages in the Bible that call us to meditate on the Bible day and night. And then, then our way will be made prosperous and successful. So let me exhort you also to, to see that uh, the
the whole Bible is, is testifying to Jesus Christ. And if you say to me, well, how does a book like Esther testify to Jesus? Well, I think that what we have in the book of Esther is a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And ultimately, that conflict is resolved in the triumph of Christ on the cross. And so uh, this, this book of Esther is just one instance of this wider cosmic and, and, and uh, um, uh, all history encompassing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman ultimately triumph in victories that look like the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't, we don't triumph um, uh, now the way that Esther and Mordecai triumphed. We triumph now the way that Jesus triumphed. That is by, by loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us. And as Revelation 12:11 puts it, not loving our lives even unto death. So, uh, just, just, just let me uh, exhort you to be a student of the Word, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord open your eyes to see Christ in the Scriptures, and may you enjoy your reading of, of the Bible. Uh, give yourself to it in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and, and know it backward and forward and preach it. Preach the Word. Let it go. Unleash it and tie it together from end to end. And may God bless your ministry of His Word.